Well, good morning, church. I invite you to turn along with me to Second Peter chapter 2. And as, as you turn there, I'll just add my happy Mother's Day to the bunch that you've heard already. Um, and you want to have a minute as you get there, because to be honest, when I went to find Second Peter again this week, as I was preparing, it took me far too long to find it. So pastors struggle sometimes too with that. Um, but just on Mother's Day, I thought it was, it was worth talking about this a bit. Um, we are, we're not having a special Mother's Day sermon because that feels terrifying for me to preach. So I'll just do this. Um, my mom, what was such an incredible influence on me, I, I think in a lot of ways, I look back on her spiritual life and the, and the encouragement that came through that. Um, and I can see how she led to me being where I am today as a pastor uh, for as far back as I can remember. And so moms, hear this as an encouragement. Your kids see these things. They, they will respond to your spiritual maturity. For as far back as I can remember, I remember waking up at 7 a.m. To, to get ready for the bus, to come right around 8. And my mom at that point would have already been up for an hour in our basement, praying and in the Word. And I would wake up, and I would eat breakfast, and I would shower, 7.45, 8 o'clock rolling around, and she would still be down there. And she would come up just long enough to, to see me off and to send me into the day, but to this day, I'm pretty sure that is still my mom's practice, that, that she sets aside almost two hours every morning to, to be in the Word and to be in prayer. And even going to Bible school and coming back, my mom would just pepper me with questions. She just wanted to know God. So she has been an incredible influence on me. Um, and mothers, you have the opportunity to be the same for your kids. So happy Mother's Day. And hear that both as a, as a celebration of who you are for your children and encouragement to, to the difference that you can make. But we will be in 2 Peter chapter 2 this morning as we dive into God's Word. We'll be looking at the entire chapter, so I will just read that for us now. The Apostle Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. 
They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passion of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Got a fun one this morning. One of the, one of the great, really, joys, as much as it's hard, but also one of the, the great challenges and kind of terrifying elements of preaching through books is sometimes you come across chapters like this. Um, and we don't hear this stuff a lot, but, but the Bible actually talks about it quite a bit. The reason being that the history of the Christian church really has been a history of contending for the true faith. In every era, as we have sought to hold fast to the truth, people have arose who have taught error and have sought to bring others along with them into that error. We even see this happening clearly right here in the New Testament. Already, the apostles were battling against false teachers, the Judaizers and the Gnostics. But in every era, as we have sought to combat this error, the Lord has providentially used those battles to help us really refine and strengthen our doctrine, to understand God's word more fully. Around 140 AD, only about 100 years after Christ's ascension, a man named Marcion began to teach that Yahweh and Jesus were two completely different gods. In fact, not only were they different, they were actually bitter enemies. They opposed one another. Marcion rejected the Old Testament entirely. He put forward a list of, of butchered New Testament books to try to forward his view. He denied Christ's humanity and, and completely removed all the power of the incarnation. Due to his wealth and prestige, his views caught on. But faithful believers stood firm. Men like Tertullian and Irenaeus opposed him and were ultimately victorious, leading to a clear understanding of the books that would become the Bible and a better defense of Christ's humanity. And then again, in 318 AD, not that long after, a riot broke out in the city of Alexandria with people filling the streets chanting, there was a time when Christ was not. The teachings of a presbyter named Arius had spread through the church like wildfire. His largest claim being that Jesus Christ was a created being who was not equal with God the Father. A young man named Athanasius rejected the teachings of Arius and entered a battle which he would seemingly be losing for many, many years. In fact, the resistance to Christ's equality with God the Father became so fierce that Athanasius in his battle became known as Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. He was one of the few main bishops in the church who still held to the reality of the Trinity. He stood his ground for biblical Christianity. And through resistance and being exiled from his city five times in his life, he would ultimately be victorious in the fight, establishing for us clearly 
the doctrine of the Trinity. Through all of our history as the Church of Jesus Christ, the battles have continued. I mean, you can list off names, Pelagius, Eutyches, Nestorius, Socinius. Through the Protestant Reformation, we have men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and many others standing to proclaim the true gospel. Not even that long ago, in the last hundred years, we have the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 1920s, where the battle was fought over whether the Bible was true and reliable. And even today, we continue in a battle against the prosperity gospel and many so-called churches that reject the Bible's authority over their lives and practice. Contending for the true faith has been part of our existence as the church from the beginning. And today, we're going to see how Peter spoke of the earliest false teachers in the church. All right, so in 2 Peter 1, we saw that Peter was addressing what it would look like for believers to confirm their calling and election by God, and how the true faith was established in the prophetic scriptures, which were more confirmed by Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So now he turns his focus the other way. Now he turns to, to ask, well, what kind of behaviors and beliefs shape those who do not know Christ or who claim to know Christ but don't truly. And he speaks of the judgment of God that awaits for them if they continue in their error. So we'll have four points this morning. The danger of false teachers in verses 1 to 3. The judgment on false teachers in 4 to the first half of verse 10. The marks of false teachers, the second half of 10 through 16. And the folly of false teachers in verses 17 through 22. I'll just say out front, uh, I screwed up. This should not have been one sermon, uh, but I put it in the calendar this way, and now we're here. This probably should have been three. So we're going to be moving pretty quickly this morning, and we're definitely not going to answer every question that could be asked. So if, if we're reading this text and something pops out to you that, that you just feel really confused and I don't talk about it, come talk to me. I've studied this in depth. Hopefully I have a, a compelling answer for you. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to be moving quickly through this chapter this morning. And so our first point, the danger of false teachers, in the first three verses here. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So coming out of chapter 1, Peter has just proclaimed the reliability and the reality of the Old Testament prophetic word. But among the people of God in the Old Testament, there were still false prophets. That's who he has in view here. When he says false prophets arose among the people, he's, he's thinking about the nation of Israel, right? God's people in the Old Testament. And so even as God was working through his prophets to guide his people and establish his written word, there were others who claimed to be speaking for God who weren't really. They, they claimed to be prophets, but they drew the people away from the one true God. And in the same way, Peter is saying, we still in the New Testament era will have to deal with false teachers. And he's certain of it. He's not saying they might. This isn't an if statement. He's saying false teachers will arise among you. We see that in the history of the church again and again and again. People who want to distort the truth of God's word. But what Peter says is that they will come in secretly. And that is one of the great dangers of false teachers. They don't come into a church saying, yes, my goal is for all of you to deny the Trinity by the time I'm done. 
They don't, they don't come in like that. They come in wanting to appear like Christians. In fact, they probably believe that they are. They just think that they've seen something that, that the church has never seen before. So they come in, they look like Christians, they, they play the part, they, they seem to do all the right things, but the reality is that they are bringing in doctrine that will devour the church. As we go through 2 Peter 2 here, uh, there's a lot of places in which it's really obvious that Peter was one of the disciples. He, he sounds a lot like Jesus in some of these places, and this is one of them. In Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like sheep. They look like true believers in Jesus Christ, but in reality, they aren't. They're being used by Satan to cause havoc and destruction within Christ's church. One commentator I read this week wisely quipped that false teachers use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. You know, they're going to read from the Bible. They're going to use a lot of the same words that we use. Heaven, love, salvation, mercy, grace, sin, though they often leave that last one out. They talk about Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, but when they use these terms, they often mean totally different things than we do. The Jehovah's Witnesses talk a lot about Jesus. They don't believe in the same Jesus that we do. So they twist scripture to fit what they want it to say, rather than submitting to its proper reading and meaning in the context of all of scripture. Really, what, what Peter is warning us is that their teaching might sound a lot like orthodoxy. It might sound right because they present it so well. But it is, as Peter says, a destructive heresy. So this word didn't have the same built-out meaning for, for these first century readers as it has for us. Um, so today, if you actually hear this word come from somebody who knows what they're talking about and isn't just throwing it out flippantly, uh, heresy is, is the word we use to talk about a teaching that is in any way opposed to the, the core fundamentals of the Christian faith that we've had established for 1,500 years. It's something that, that goes against the Apostles' Creed, like we would recite from time to time here, or some of those early creeds and councils of the church. And so if someone denies that, we would now say that they are guilty of heresy. But to a first century listener, what this word meant more was, was a fact, or a, sorry, a faction or a sect or a party. Peter is saying that, that these people are going to use false doctrine to build up groups of people, to build up sects and factions and divisions within churches and within the church more broadly, who oppose sound teaching and ultimately cause damage to the people of God. They're going to secretly use these destructive teachings to, to build up more momentum, to build up more people who are on their side, denying core elements of the faith, and they're going to bring down churches by their false doctrine. Where they will ultimately end, Peter says, is denying Christ, whether in word or in deed, and they will seek to bring others along with them. So one great danger of false teachers is that they come in secretly. Another, though, is that their teaching is really attractive. Peter says that many will follow in their sensuality, which this word can be translated as sensuality or licentiousness or depraved conduct. Essentially, the false teachers are so appealing because rather than calling people to die to themselves and to put to death their flesh like Christ does, they may tell people that God is just okay with them doing whatever it is that they think is right. right? They can just do what they desire. False teachers will often minimize sin or, even worse, tell their followers that God approves of, th of things that he explicitly disapproves. This may happen and is happening in our culture and in co churches in our culture with sexual sin. 
People try to convince themselves and others that God is okay with sexual conduct outside of a monogamous marriage between a biological man and a biological woman. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. People deny it. This may happen with greed as they try to convince people that God is happy to be treated like a genie who's going to make you rich and healthy. But Peter says that when people believe the lies of these false teachers, the truth is blasphemed. When Christians don't live in accordance with the doctrines of Scripture, they dishonor and revile the truth of God. Beyond that, these false teachers are greedy. And so as they convince others to to live in a way that God does not approve, they will seek to also gain from them, to exploit them, whether it's for support or money or or something else. They will exploit other well-meaning Christians in order to achieve their goals. So Peter is clear in these first three verses that false teachers are profoundly dangerous. They can't be trifled with. They can't be left alone, hoping that, oh, if we just leave them, nothing, nothing will come of it. That will be okay. Through their teaching, Christ is dishonored. Sin is exalted, and the truth about God is distorted. Yet Peter is clear. For now, they can run rampant and cause damage in the church. But judgment is coming. That's what he continues in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So I haven't noted this yet. Uh, 2 Peter in general and 2 Peter 2 in, in specific have a lot of similarities with the book of Jude. If you go home and read Jude after this, you'll notice they use a lot of the same language. They're talking about a lot of the same things. Um, And most of these similarities are right here in these verses. It says they speak about the character of false teachers and their judgment that is coming. They talk about it in very similar ways. So clearly, it's just worth knowing, one author was, was referencing off of the other. We don't really know what direction that went in. We know that they were using the same stories and they were teaching similar things with slightly different angles. It won't play much into our interpretation here, but it's just, it's good to know. And so we see here, again, that that false teaching is not a small thing. It is so serious that those who are spreading it are ensuring for themselves the coming wrath of God. Peter has said earlier in the letter that for Christians, there is prepared a place in Christ's eternal kingdom. But for false teachers, there is no such promise. Only punishment and judgment, or as he'll say in verse 17, the gloom of utter darkness is reserved for them. And Peter is going to use three Old Testament examples to make his point. So, just to pause for a minute, I realize we all know this. Judgment and wrath are not topics that we love talking about. Um, But we must, together, take seriously God's word. It's hard. I, I I take no joy in preaching these sermons. I labor over them because I want to be sure I'm saying what the Bible says and not what I want it to say. But this is reality. And so our prayer as a church should be that this morning, 
these severe, these severe warnings of judgment and wrath serve as the cry to people who need to turn to Jesus in repentance to avoid the coming wrath of God. So these three examples, the first that Peter uses is that of fallen angels. There is a lot of debate about this one verse. What in the world is Peter talking about? I have an opinion to work through it here. I'm going to take too much time. Um, but the nice thing is we don't actually need to know exactly what story he's referring to to understand his point. Peter is saying angels are far more powerful and glorious than human beings, right? They, they are celestial, spiritual beings. They can do a whole lot more than we can do, but if they reject God's authority and sin, judgment is coming for them. And so his point is essentially asking them, do you really think that if God is judging angels who are more powerful and more mighty than you, that he won't do the same to you, false teachers? Are you really so arrogant to think that God would judge them and not you? And so Peter sets up these three examples uh, in these verses by the word if. He's using it rhetorically. So, so with everyone, it's like he's saying, if God did this, with everyone, without everyone, he's saying, if God did this, why wouldn't he do the same thing today? Or to, to put it more plainly, God did this in the past, so he will do it again. So that's Peter's first example. Angels cannot avoid judgment, judgment so why would the false teachers think that they can? And then he draws on two others that are, are far more well-known examples. So he talks about Noah and the ark and the flood. So right, the story of, of the absolute mess that humanity became after the fall. That, that sin became so rampant that God, in righteous judgment, was going to start over with a new family, with, with Noah and his family. And so through the waters of judgment, God preserves Noah and his family, and they stand. Rebellion, wickedness is wiped out for a time, and the righteous are brought through it. And the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, this city, these two cities that had become absolutely overrun with sexual sin. And so God came to bring judgment, but he brought out Lot and his family before it came. And so in both cases, we see examples of God bringing severe judgment on those who reject his commands. But in both cases, we see God saving the righteous from the midst of those who would draw them away from the Lord. Really, what Peter is doing is offering both a warning and a comfort. To the false teachers, he is making it clear that what they are doing is a grievous sin. And even if in their false teaching they deny that there's a final judgment coming, which we think is probably part of it because just in chapter 3, one of the things that Peter assures these readers again is that Jesus is coming back. So maybe these false teachers were denying it, saying there was going to be no final judgment so people could live however they wanted. Peter's saying, great, you might think that. The pattern of Scripture shows you that you're wrong. The pattern of Scripture shows you that God does not leave sin unpunished. But to the righteous... Peter is clear that God is more than able to rescue his people from the midst of trials. So some of you, while hearing this, there might be fear, right? You, you are nervous. You're worried that false teachers might deceive you. We need to hear what Peter is saying. So first, be discerning, right? Grow your biblical and theological knowledge. Don't be lazy in growing your understanding so that you can stand firm against false teaching, but then hear this assurance God knows how to rescue and keep you. Think, think again in chapter 1. He lists off all these qualities and says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, then you will never fall. Never fall. 
You will never fall because God will not lose any of his people. He doesn't do it. It will not happen. When you have put your faith in Christ truly and fully, no one is snatching you out of his hand. That is a promise of scripture. And so as much as these passages on judgment are hard, one thing that they help us to see clearly is how much God cares about us as his church. The judgment on false teachers is sure and severe because God does not like when people mess with his children. He will defend his church. He will defend the truth. God loves us too much to just turn a blind eye when people bring corrupting influences into his church. So he's not going to let these false teachers have ultimate victory. It's never going to happen. Jesus promised that, that his church would forever prevail that he would build it and it would not lose. The church will never cease to exist. False teachers will come and go, but the church will win. Even if legitimate believers might get deceived and slip for a time. Right, like I said, God will not leave sin unpunished. But even if for a time you have fallen into the deceptiveness of sin, if you have put your faith in Christ truly, the penalty for your sin has been paid. God's justice was displayed on the cross and Christ took your sin so that you can rest securely. So we must be aware that the judgment that awaits false teachers is severe and we must call them to repentance for the sake of their souls. But even as we do this, even as we are aware of the serious threat that they are, we can rest securely in Christ's promises. And with that, Peter turns to speaking of the false teacher's character. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction." suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained for greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So four potential marks we have here that Peter points us to. And so this is not exhaustive, right? It's not like we can just look at an individual, check all four boxes and go, hmm, that's a false teacher. Or, you know, oh, they only check two of the three, even though they're denying that, that Christ came to, the, to earth. Yeah, no, they're fine. This is not an exhaustive list. These are general characteristics and especially we must remember, he said earlier, they're going to come in secretly. So these things won't necessarily be obvious from the beginning. But the four traits he gives, the first of them is that these false teachers are arrogant in their ignorance. The false teachers are arrogant in their ignorance. They speak boldly, but ignorantly, of realities that they don't truly understand. They're willing to blaspheme, which this word can also mean slander or revile angels. And so again, we're not totally clear on what Peter has in mind here. There's, there's really two options. He could be talking about fallen angels, like he did just a few verses earlier, 
or he could be talking about good angels. But again, this is great because whichever one he's talking about doesn't change the point that he's trying to make. So if he's talking about fallen angels, what he's saying is these false teachers foolishly think that Satan and his group have no power. And they foolishly speak against them, trivializing them, acting like they don't exist or they don't have influence or they don't have power. Not realizing that even the good angels will not stand before God and blaspheme the evil ones. They won't do it. They leave that to God. Or, if Peter has good angels in mind, he's essentially saying that these false prophets are blaspheming God's messengers. Yet the messengers, in turn, won't go before God and blaspheme the false teachers. They will leave that judgment to God. And so the point is that these teachers are arrogant, and they speak boldly of powerful realities that they don't truly understand. It is interesting, Peter uses angels twice in these illustrations, once to point to the reality that even they will be judged, so the false teachers should expect judgment, and a second time to just show the arrogance, the outright arrogance of these false teachers and their behavior towards more powerful beings. So that's the first one. They are arrogant in their ignorance. The second is that false teachers delight in and brag about their sin. Peter talks about this in such a specific way. He says that they enjoy reveling in the daytime. So so we got to think about this. We know that Christians do not delight in sin, right? There, There is the moment where we sin and we do it because we want to and there's that enjoyment, but then conviction comes and repentance comes and forgiveness comes. But what he's saying is that these false teachers, firstly, they revel in their sin. They enjoy it. They never stop enjoying it. But worse than that, they don't even have the decency to do it while it's hidden. They're they're not, you know, sneaking away to their houses to sin. They are reveling in the daytime, just out in the open. They want everybody to see and hear about the sin that they are committing. There's no shame. There's no repentance. There's simply a joy in rejecting God's righteous rule. And because of this, Peter calls them blots and blemishes as they fellowship with other Christians. Peter says they're like a stain on churches because of their refusal of God's commands. Now, to be clear, we really need to be certain of who he's talking about here. He is not talking about unbelievers who know they are unbelievers. We shouldn't expect unbelievers to act like Christians, right? So here at New Life Church, an unbeliever is welcome to be here and to do their thing outside of these four walls, we want them to hear the gospel and to respond to it. But until that happens, we treat them like unbelievers. He's also not talking about Christians who struggle with sin but are repentant, right? It's a continual battle, and this believer knows it. They know it's sin. They hate that they do it, but they struggle. He's not talking about them. He's not saying that unbelievers or repentant Christians are blots and blemishes. He's saying that those who profess Christ as Lord but take joy in doing things he has commanded them not to do. Those are the stains. Those are the ones who dishonor Christ by their very presence in churches. The next mark that he gives us is that they aim to draw newer or weaker believers into their lies. This is one of the most important reasons why we must identify and, if necessary, denounce false teachers. They prey on young believers who don't yet have the foundation of truth that they need to stand firm in the midst of these lies. So in doing so, these false teachers entice and draw them away. They exploit them. They get them to reject biblical truth without these poor young believers even knowing what's happening. And so we as Christians help guard young believers by actively protecting them from false teaching and false teachers. 
aiming to grow them in the foundations of the faith so that one day they can do the same for other new believers. In verse 18, Peter will describe these young believers as those who are barely escaping those who live in error. They're just beginning a walk with Christ. They're just beginning to turn from their sin towards him. And they're easy prey. Because in those early battles, as you're just trying to understand what it means to please God, when somebody comes in and tells you, oh no, you can keep doing this thing that, that, God, that you think God says you can't. Well, it feels like freedom. It feels like what they need, but they are aiming to destroy them. Therefore, the church must step in to help them as they escape from their life apart from Christ. And the final mark that Peter gives is that they will do anything to benefit themselves. Peter comes back to greed again. Second time he's brought it up in this, in this section. These people want to gain from the spreading of false doctrines. And he pulls out another Old Testament example, probably one of the more crazy ones that we have. The story of Balaam, who, who by all accounts was a real prophet. God actually spoke through Balaam. But a foreign king comes and bribes him. He goes, I'm going to give you money and you're going to go curse the people of God for me. So Balaam rightly goes, asks God what he should do, and God says, no. So Balaam comes back and tells the guy to go away. Guy comes back, offers him more money. Balaam goes back to God, and you can just see God going, do you know what? Your choice. You go do it if that's what you think you need to do. And on the road as he goes, which Peter very humorously reminds us about, his donkey talks to him. So it's like God is saying, do you know what? If this guy who claims to be my prophet isn't going to speak what is true, I'm going to have a stupid animal do it for him. I'm going to stop him in his tracks, and a donkey is going to tell him that what he is doing is wrong. Balaam still failed. He, he tried to curse the people of God, and every time that God spoke, it was just more blessing. <laughs> but, but what we're seeing is that Peter says that, that false teachers are just like Balaam. They don't care about the truth. They might even think they do. Again, they think they're fighting for a good cause when really they're ripping down the foundational elements of the Christian faith. But they just want to gain. They just want to gain a following. They want to gain power and privilege and money. And so we see that the character of false teachers is simply incompatible with the Christian life. I mean, think back to the, the list of qualities that Peter gave in the first chapter here. Every one of them has been completely destroyed by how he's described false teachers. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness, your steadfastness with godliness, your godliness with brotherly affection, and your brotherly affection with love. They lack every single one of them. They may fake it for a time. They may be able to, to make it look like they have these things, like they are truly seeking the best interest of others, but ultimately it will all fall apart. And that is because while these false teachers claim to be offering truth, they are, in actuality, bringing a message that can never satisfy. That brings us to our final points, the last verses of our chapter. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness 
then after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So Peter goes out of his way in these final few verses to essentially make one point clear to his readers. Do not buy what the false teachers are selling. And he uses these really vivid images. So first he describes them as waterless springs, right? It's like this idea of like seeing a mirage out in the desert. You're desperate for water. You need it to keep going. And it seems to be this this promise of relief. But as you get closer, it, it disappears. It's gone. Second picture of of mists driven by a storm. This is something that I'm sure the farmers in here have experienced. It's the big dark rain clouds rolling in and it looks like the relief is going to come, the rain that you need. And a few drops fall and the clouds move on. And what seems to be promising so much has left you completely empty, completely left wanting. So then he clarifies the illustrations and he says it outright. These false teachers are promising freedom but they cannot give it. In fact, what they're offering may seem like freedom, but they are actually causing you to be enslaved to something else. I mean, we can think about this with with examples of some of the false teaching that is common in the church today. A false teacher telling you that God doesn't actually have substantial restrictions on sexual activity may feel like he is offering you freedom, but he's just setting you up to be enslaved to your lusts and passions. He's making you a slave of your own body. A false teacher telling you that God wants you to be rich and happy if you have enough faith sounds like he's offering you the freedom of an easy life when he's just setting you up to be enslaved by your possessions, by your finances. A false teacher telling you that God has given him secret knowledge of scripture that nobody else has may seem to be promising you a deeper relationship with God, but he is actually enslaving you to himself as the only one who you can go to for deeper revelation. These may feel like freedom at first, but they are truly slavery. You know, one of the more neglected truths in Scripture is that Christ has freed us from being slaves to sin so that we can be his slaves. So so freedom in Christ, we, we love it, and we should. It is good and true, but that freedom is only possible within the boundaries that Christ has set. And so as we obey him as slaves, it is in our obedience, where he becomes the only place where we can find true freedom. Because our culture has lied to us, and it's told us that the true freedom is just being able to act however I feel, to, you know, you do you, do what's best for you, follow your heart. It's lied to us. It says that freedom is just being able to to be who you want to be, which isn't true. True freedom is being able to live like humanity was designed to, which is in perfect submission to the commands of God and in perfect relationship with him. That's true freedom. Freedom isn't doing what I want because then we would just be slaves to our own sinful passions. Freedom is being slaves of Christ. And so we ought to flee the false freedom offered by false teaching so that we can experience the true freedom that is found in being his slaves. And then Peter drops what I think is honestly the biggest bomb of this whole chapter. For these false teachers, he says, it would have been better for them to have never heard the gospel at all than to have heard it and then distorted and rejected it as they have. And again, you you can see Peter was one of Jesus' disciples because this is exactly what Jesus says about two cities in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Jesus is saying, I did all these miracles in these two cities and they wouldn't repent. So even though these other two cities also aren't repentant, the judgment is going to be more severe for the ones who saw, the ones who had no excuse. They saw his power. What Peter is saying and what Jesus is saying is that the judgment is greater for those who know more. So this is a serious issue with false teaching. It is propagated by people who claim to be Christians. They've heard the gospel. They have, in some sense, escaped the defilements of the world. They have tasted God's goodness, not fully because that's reserved for true believers, but in part because they've participated in a church. They've, they've seen the love of Christ shown through his people, and they've seen him transforming others. And because of that, this sin of departing from the truth is even more serious. And so Peter ends with a proverb. He says that they're like a dog who vomits and walks away and then just comes back and eats it. Or a pig that, that comes out of the mud, goes and gets washed off, and immediately goes and throws itself back into the mud. They've come out of the world, and they see living, breathing examples of people who have been transformed by the grace of God. But they distort the truth and ultimately return back to where they were. One thing this parable makes really clear is that these are not believers who lose their salvation. I think Peter kind of hints at that throughout, that we should realize that these are not true Christians. They claim to be, but they're not. And Scripture is clear that for those who are in Christ, they're safe. No, none will snatch them out of his hand. So these are not believers who lose their salvation. Rather, they're like a dog who for a time stops acting like a dog. Or like a pig who for a time stops acting like a pig, but ultimately they're going to show their true colors. They fake it for a bit, but there was never true transformation. Just a short change in behavior and then a clear evidence that they never truly knew Christ. So chapter two in a nutshell is this. False teaching is dangerous, and it must be dealt with. False teachers must repent of their false teaching so that they can be saved and not face God's coming judgment. And Christians must be reminded again and again to not buy the lies that they are selling, but hold fast to the truth of God as he has revealed in Scripture. How do we apply this? I'll give you four applications. There's definitely more than this that could come out of here. Um, yeah, these are the hard ones to know exactly. What do we do? How do we move forward with this information? And so the first, and maybe the most simple one, is that we need to realize and acknowledge that false teachers exist today. Just because someone calls themselves a Christian, just because a building calls itself a church, it doesn't mean that it is true. It does not mean that that is the reality. So we have to listen carefully to what people say. Are they actually teaching the, the historic truths of the Christian faith? Or are they undermining them? Or Rusty's been really helpful to me as we've had conversations about this previously. We have to listen to what they say, but, but more than that, we have to listen to what they refuse to say. If you're in a church for, for a year, two years, five years, and you never hear them talk about sin or the wrath of God or hell, they never actually present the gospel in full if they avoid those things. And so we have to hear what they say, but we also have to pay attention to the things that they won't. They're insidious and secretive. They'll try to lure you in with grand promises of freedom and comfort, but their house of cards is going to collapse. 
God's word stands forever and false teaching will not. Second application, and I, I won't harp on this for as long as I live. Uh, we all, myself included, need to grow our biblical and theological knowledge to help guard against false teaching. The pastors of this church, we're going to do everything in our power to guard you as a flock, but we can't do it all. Praise God, we live in an age where you can find seminary-level content on any Christian subject for totally free as videos and podcasts or for the price of a few books. The best way to guard ourselves from false teaching is to know the truth or to borrow the old phrase from most sports, the best offense is a good defense. They, They can't make headway if they can't break you down on the fundamentals of the faith, but that can only happen if you understand them and you're assured of them and you know fully that that is what scripture teaches. Third application, if you are spiritually mature, mentor some younger believers, right? I mean, twice in this chapter, Peter notes that these false teachers will target immature young Christians. And so if you have the experience and the knowledge to give up some of your time to mentor younger Christians and to grow them in these truths, use it. Give up your time in that way. And for young Christians, if that's something that you'd like, let us know. We, we would love as a church to find people for you to grow alongside, more seasoned believers who can help ground you in God's word. And finally, application number four is contend for the faith. Like I said, the book of Jude um, has a lot of similarities here in 2 Peter. And then the way that Jude starts that book is he, he literally says to them, I wanted to write to you about the common salvation that we share but it became obvious to me that instead I needed to write to you so that you would know to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So I have to make a statement that is extremely unpopular in our culture. culture. There is room for denouncing false teachers publicly. One of the ways in which we contend for the faith is by clearly drawing the line between truth and error. Now, for those of you who get excited by me saying that, and I'm, that's, that's my bent, so I'm preaching to myself as well as to you. Be patient. Be very patient. Don't, don't get caught up on sound bites and out-of-context little clips. Listen to a lot of what somebody has to say if it sounds like they are departing from the Christian faith. Don't go heresy hunting. Don't, don't try to find these people so that you can tear their ministries down. That's not the way to go about it. But also know that there are things that are not so serious that they make someone a false teacher. There, there are disagreements that are valid, but, but they don't make someone what Peter is describing here. We can disagree on creation and on the end times. We can disagree on baptism. We can disagree on so many things that are not core and fundamental to the Christian faith. It is those core things that we must defend wholeheartedly. We can defend the other ones. It's good. We should defend what we think the Bible teaches. But above all else, if someone departs from those core elements of the Christian faith, they are a false teacher. And then a final word to those of you like me, uh, check your attitude. We don't denounce in order to revel in it, in order to make ourselves judge over somebody to get to say, you, you are going to hell. That's not our job. If we denounce false teachers, we do it to guard believers and to call false teachers to repentance. Those are the only reasons. And now for those of you who feel a lot of tension because I just said that we may need to denounce false teachers publicly, please know that this is not my idea. This is the Bible's idea. 
Paul, on multiple occasions, names names. He calls people out by name. 1 Timothy chapter 1. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. In 2 Timothy, he does it again. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And Paul gives us this direction in Ephesians 5. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So this feels culturally inappropriate, but it is the right response to false teaching. And it is needed because, quite honestly, there are so many TV preachers and popular Christian books that teach the exact same kind of stuff that Peter is going after here. Please, just, just because someone calls himself a pastor and has a TV show, they are not worth listening to. It's, ugh, it's terrifying. The, the gospel is being distorted. People are falling into these errors because of people who call themselves Christians. So we must contend. We must both proclaim the truth and point out error for the sake of calling false teachers to repentance and for the sake of other Christians. You know, at the end of chapter one, Peter compares God's word to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's the illustration he says. The, the Bible, the truth of God's word, is the way by which we see everything else. And so we have the responsibility as the church of Jesus Christ to make sure that that lamp is left unobstructed. We need to get out of its way and let it say what is true. Because it is the only place where we know how to know and please God. It is the only place in which we know how to be saved. So we as the church, we must guard it. The only light that can lead people to God. Let's pray. And Father, you know our culture. You know that, that this is a culture that values tolerance and that the idea of saying that somebody is wrong is, is offensive. Uh, the idea of drawing the line in the sand and saying this is true and this is false um, would make us very unpopular. But Lord, that is what you have done. You have given us your word and you have said this is true, everything else is false. So Father, we just ask that you would guard our church from this, that you would keep any who would come in here to draw us away from the truth, that you would give us wisdom to see when that is happening and to expose it, to call them to repentance. So Father, give us a great love and a great patience that we would guard one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would call one another to stay faithful to your word and that we would, for the sake of their souls, denounce false teaching and call those teachers to repent and truly put their faith in Christ. Father, we are nothing apart from you and your truth, so establish us in it today. Amen.